Hey y'all, my name is Ann Wyatt. I started my career in workforce development with the state of Kentucky in 2010. That experience ignited a deep passion for manufacturing within me. I started this show hoping to raise more awareness around the bright outlook manufacturing careers have. Join me as I sit down with some of the manufacturing industry's most successful change makers and learn how they're partnering people with technology. It's time to give people more meaningful work. This is Workforce 4.0. I am so stoked and honored to have our guest, Michael Patrick Perry, with us on Workforce 4.0. Michael is the Vice President of Marketing for Dexterity. First of all, he's amazing. And secondly, he's excited to talk about all things workforce and how uh, technology is helping giving people more meaningful work. So Michael, do you want to introduce yourself just really quickly to our audience here? Yeah, thank you, Anne, and wow, what a pleasure it is to be here on the Workforce Wednesday uh, chat. Um, very eager to chat with you and, and the community about what we're doing in robotics and automation. So we were just talking about this before we started rolling, but you know, my background has um, really ranged the gamut for different types of robots. Um, currently at Dexterity, the company that I work at now, uh, we handle robots that can grasp and interact with things in a way that typical robots and automation couldn't do before. Before that, I worked at Boston Dynamics where we worked on walking robots, deploying robots in complicated, unstructured environments where wheeled and tracked robots couldn't go before. And before that, I worked at DJI, which is the world's largest drone manufacturer. So getting robotics in, into the sky and making it accessible for people and changing the way that they do work. So I've gotten a chance to look at a, a variety of robots and have seen the transformative power that they can have in different industries. That's amazing. Yes. I know when I the show up for today, our friend Chris Lukey made sure to comment that you knew a lot about drones too. So we've got to give you a little bit of space here later in the episode to talk a little bit more about that as well. Absolutely. If you're joining us live, I just want to remind you, get in the comments section. So without further ado, you know, it's just kind of been a tradition at this point for me to ask all of my guests here on the show what their go-to karaoke song is or if you don't have a go-to karaoke song what your favorite song is and Michael I just want to ask do you do you mind to share that with us no problem so keeping with the theme of today's discussion I wanted to do something robotic related like typically most of the karaoke songs that I, I sing in real life are very like one octave, very little modulation and notes. But for today's discussion, I figured we should do Daft Punk one more time. I know they've had later hits, but that's the song that I, I jammed to when I was growing up. And I think we could belt it out and have a good time with a crowd, particularly those of us who love robots. I love that. Yes, that is so awesome. Yes, that's a good one too. I'm going to have to go play that a little later because <laughs> I could use that energy oh, yeah. to, today. So <laughs> awesome. Great deal. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Sure. What's, what's your song? I, I, does anybody ever ask you that? No one asks me that. No. Oh, I've, oh there you go. 
Are you what's, asking me my favorite karaoke? Yeah, what's 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 your karaoke song? Well, you know, I did an event in Charlotte a couple of months ago and we all went out for karaoke and I started with Alanis Morissette, All I Really Want. Okay. Which is a good one. So but, I think you, you know, can actually sing. <laughs> well, I try. Okay. I try, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do my hardest, but I'm thinking about adding Raise Your Glass by Pink. Oh, to my karaoke list. Man, you're you're bold. I don't have the pipes for that, but I I would be cheering you on. Yeah, well, I figured it's a good karaoke song, right? <laughs> Gets sure. the people going for sure. <laughs> I know you're amped to talk more about robotics, and I'm amped to learn more. So we'll get into kind of the depth of our conversation here. But you've worked for some amazing companies within your career. I know you mentioned Boston Dynamics, and now you're with Dexterity. Can you tell us what you find most exciting about working in the robotics industry and why you are so passionate about this industry? Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things where um, the the first thing that got me really excited about working in robotics, working with DJI in the drone space, was that you got to be outside. I'm, I love being outside. I love being in the, the physical world. And as I've gone from robots that fly to robots that walk to robots that grasp things, getting to physically interact with the real world as a part of my job, it sounds totally obvious to people that make things, but in the technology space, particularly here in the US, that's not always the case. So you get to push the envelope of what's possible while at, you know, being face-to-face -face with the thing that's being made, like whether it's the robot or the impact that the robot's having on the, the physical world. So I'd say, you know, in terms of the pleasure that, you know, one has working in robotics, that's that's gotta be the number one thing is just being able to physically interact with things. But then taking a step back and saying, you know, what's happening in this industry, robotics is at an interesting transition point where, Previously, robotics was very inaccessible to people. It, it was, you know, something that was either in the lab or in, you know, very expensive industries that could afford high-end expensive robots, whether that's military and defense or auto manufacturing. We're now at this inflection point where the cost of compute and, you know, GPUs and, and various sensors like GPS and vision cameras and so on, so, so on and so forth are getting cheaper and cheaper, that the intelligence for robotics is becoming accessible to a lot more people than ever before. So with that brings people's creativity. You know, in the drone space, we saw people using drones to fly into volcanoes to, you know, uh, collect data that you know, was previously impossible to do so they could learn more about the world. With Spot, the walking robot from Boston Dynamics, um, I was so lucky to see the robot be deployed in nuclear fusion reactors and deployed at Chernobyl and even, you know, be a performance, uh, part of a performance in a clown show. Uh, and now with dexterity, you know, there's this urgent need for adding automation 
to brownfield warehouses. Where we were talking about this before, where you've got this massive scaling of warehousing and manufacturing, but you don't always have the people that are there that that, that are required to do all of the complicated work that you expect a person to do. And this next generation of robotics is now enabling people to think creatively about how automation can step in and supplant and expand their capabilities in these sectors. So not to sound like a tech optimist, super fanboy, but you know, the, the sky really is the limit for this next generation of robotics. Yeah, I think that's what's so interesting about robotics and industrial automation right now is, you know, it is very much like the Wild West, so to speak, if if you want to compare it to that, but it's like very innovative space, right? There's where manufacturing, there's always been standards and there's been process for so long. And now we're really getting a chance to exactly be creative and yep. design new new machinery that performs new functions and and helps us out. And then you think about the ability to access robotics now. Mm-hmm. You know, who doesn't love the Roombas, right? <laughs> so it's like yeah. become a intangible, and now it's in your house. You know. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent stuff. Thank you so much for that. We do have our first comment here. I'm assuming this is from Carol uh, because she's, LinkedIn does this to me too, Um, (laughs) but she's here. She says the best question asked in the history of Workforce 4.0. I think she's talking about the karaoke comment. (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Carol, if you could clarify for that on that for us, but um, yeah, excellent, good stuff. Um, so when you're thinking about some of these exciting technologies and um, coming from the robotic space and all of this creativity and all of this innovation, my optimistic viewpoint is that I'm hoping to see, you know, how, machinery such as industrial robotics and automation is going to help our human workforce, right? That's my vision for Workforce 4.0. But how do you see these technologies helping to give people more meaningful work, as we like to say? Yeah, absolutely. In the automation space, and particularly in robotics, you always talk about the three Ds, dull, dirty, dangerous. And within that context, automation is really picking up these tasks that are incredibly repetitive, whether they're doing rounds and readings where you're just walking around looking at gauges and marking them down on a chart or inputting them into an iPad. It's not really the cognitive, it doesn't benefit from like the cognitive complexity that people have and can be, again, fairly rote work. In dexterity, where we're looking at solving some of the most complicated, literally backbreaking work in a warehouse, whether it's palletizing and depalletizing or singulating and inducting, where you're just standing at the bottom of a chute, flipping packages onto a a conveyor belt, it's, you know, doesn't really benefit from all of the, the different things that our creativity, our uh, complexity, our, our passion 
really you know, can provide in, in a, a warehouse or a supply chain context. So within that, automation really is supplanting a lot of that stuff that you know, people kind of come to the table and say, I hate this part of my job the most. And that's typically where automation immediately flows to is the part that's you know, causing repetitive stress injuries or seeing the highest turnover in jobs because just candidly, people don't want to do them. Yeah, and that lends itself to, you know, while this robot, right, is doing more repetitive tasks that people don't necessarily want to do because we are people. We are, you know, we are passionate, we are creative, we are all these things, right, that make us uniquely human. Um, then, you know, that frees your human workforce up to, to provide that need for people in, yeah. in your workforce. But I have a video that you sent me and uh, I, I'd like to show it to our audience today. I think it kind of gives a great visual on, on some of these intangibles that we're talking about. Is it okay if I go ahead and show that? Yes, please. It's about a 30 second clip here. So let's just take a look. Very cool. Can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of what we just watched there, Michael? Absolutely. So Dexterity is a company that was founded in 2017, and our mission is to make rep repetition optional in work. So you know, a lot of the repetitive behaviors that people have to do in their jobs is, is as we spoke about, is not you know, cognitively complex and can be physically dangerous for people. So Dexterity is adding intelligence to commodity robot arms so that they can handle the complexity and you know, dynamic environments that you know, typically are, are bad for, for robots to, to be successful in. You know, traditional robots really need precision where you have a very known size and weight in an environment that's very pristine that the robot understands and it's programmed to do a very specific task over and over again. The real world is not like that. We have a wide variety of you know, material that's presented to the robot or uh, presented to the person that's doing a task. The person has to respond to the thing that's presented to them and still get the job done. So we built this platform of all of these layers of intelligence where the robot's sensing and touching and thinking and problem solving on the fly so that it can do a wide variety of the things that you saw in that video, which includes taking a random shoot of poly bags and Coriot boxes and, you know, bowling balls and all of this different stuff and singulating it onto a tray. We showed also in there uh, palletizing where you have 
Huggies and Gatorade and dog food that's being presented to a, a robot randomly, and it has to figure out how to stack all of those things and create a stable palette. That's where the robots are starting to get this full sense of intelligence that you know you would expect a person to have in doing this job. You know, it's it's not really crazy to you know just tell somebody, hey, stack a palette with all these random boxes. But for a robot, that's a really complex task. And we're building all of these different capabilities, intel layers of intelligence that can be applied to you know, the robot arms that are, are now widely available so that they can do this complicated work. That's really cool and very exciting, I might add. I do have a question here from Carol. I'll bring up really quickly. She would like to know which specific components of innovation are you most excited about right now? That's a um, great question, Carol. Thank you for asking. That is a great question. You know, I think that actually touches to the on the thing that I was just discussing, which is, you know, when you think about robots as they have been for the last 40 years, robots and automation, it's been what we call open loop, meaning that you tell the robot to do something and then, then it just does the thing exactly as you told it to do. So, you know, if you tell the robot to grab this phone and you, it knows that the phone is here, it'll be able to grab it. But if you move the phone over here, then we'll try to grab it here and then say, help, I'm stuck. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, this next layer of intelligence, you know, the robot can start reacting to the environment. So it says, oh, I think there's a, supposed to be a phone here, but you know what, it's over here. So I'm gonna go grab it, pick it up and move it and do the thing that I'm supposed to be doing with it. That's a very basic example, but you know, innovation and robotics is going from just following orders to responding to their environments. Now, what makes that really exciting is not just the ability to you know, adapt to workflows that are presented to it, uh, but being able to self-optimize. So what that means is with every pick, a robot, uh, our robot's uh, dexterity learns something about their environment. They know the size and the weight of the object that they're grabbing, the speed at which they move it. They can scan the barcode and figure out where it's coming from. And all of that information can be collected and then re re reflected back to you know, the owners, operators, the people on site to understand what's actually happening in their warehouse. Now that could say, that could drive insights like, oh, I know that this shipping line is always, you know, two hours late. So I'm going to optimize my production schedule so that I can bring these other things that aren't late forward in my queue, knowing that these things are always later than I, I always anticipate them to be. But where things get really interesting is when the system itself can start optimizing, where the robot system can know, oh, this thing is always late. And therefore, as I'm building orders for bread delivery, for example, and I know that the tortillas are always later than the hot dog buns, I'm going to stack these hot dog buns first, and then I'll go over to the tortillas once those arrive. So that's type of self-tuning means that the system is, again, not just following orders, but it's responding and adapting to the, the work environment um, that they're in. And that not only means, you know, we're, we're able to do more complicated work, but also meaning that we're 
you know, not having to stop production, make people go in and, you know, fiddle with robots more often. Like, you know, robots can start truly becoming, you know, a, a coworker that's working alongside the people doing these complicated jobs. Exactly. And just to build on that, this is going to be kind of an ad hoc question here. Please. Um, but just to build on that, where do you see the role of interpolarity in all of this and how important is that? Uh, uh, the role of what? Interpolarity? Interpolarity. So, yeah, so you're, you're suggesting that, um, you know, where, where do people if, uh, fit into the mix? Is that right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, within this context, you know, I think a lot of people have expectations for robots that are set by science fiction movies. You know, the, the video that you just showed really showed the cutting edge of robotics in handling things that, you know, uh, you would expect a five-year-old to be able to, to handle, which is, you know, picking a loaf of bread up from here and placing it over there. And that's really cutting edge for uh, a robot because robots love to smash bread, but giving them a sense of touch, giving them an understanding of what a loaf of bread is, even when it puffs differently or the plastic is shiny and a little strange to their vision system, understanding where and how to grab it and place it someplace is like the top of the line cutting edge. Within that context, we've seen you know countless examples of corner case scenarios where robots are, are not going to be able to be successful in the, the near term, where you have a rapid turnover of you know, workflows that need to change on a dime because something dramatically changes in the environment. If you have something that is able to handle 80% of the scenarios, then more likely than not, it, the robot is able to be a, a coworker on, on, in, the, in the space that's operating. But there's always going to be some level of creativity, problem solving on the ground the day of where a person is going to need to say, you know what, this, this is different. And this is different because of X, Y, and Z factor. And I know how to mitigate those factors. Um, so we, we've often seen in our deployments, people interacting with the robots by, you know, telling them you know, how to optimize their system. There's some fine tuning that the system will do over time, but inevitably given the complexity of supply chain and workflows, a person's going to have to be in the, the mix, giving them you know, higher and higher level commands to figure out what they need to do in order to get the job done. Excellent. Yeah, sorry. I had to nerd out for a second. So that was a little <laughs> that no, was a little please. off of our script, but I'm like, you know, I've got you here. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for that. And then Chris S has a question here for us. He says, is it possible that all this emphasis on flexibility or ultimately mimicking the human is cool technology, but ultimately taking the long way around to perform a task? In other words, each and every task is unique and fixed. So why use a mechanism that's basically a Swiss army knife when you wouldn't use a Swiss army knife if you were doing just cutting all day long? I mean, that's an interesting perspective and I definitely wanna address it because I think that's in the robotics and automation space, especially when you're going to 
these greenfield sites or even some of these brownfield sites and you're marketing your technology, but you do get a little bit of pushback and that's kind of an interesting perspective. So what's your take, Michael? Chris, that, that's a great question. And it's a fundamental question. So this, this is really the path that automation has been on for a while where you have something that's extremely fixed and extremely repeatable. And when you know that and you can calibrate a system to handle it to a certain level of throughput, then there might be a, a, a need for something that's a very defined work, work cell, as you call a typical robotic automation cell where you're doing something with millimeter precision. In the supply chain space, you can even design an entire warehouse to be a robot. They call that an automated storage and retrieval system where you have these racks that are extremely expensive, extremely complicated to deploy. But when you have a certain volume of throughput and you know, your workflow is not changing, then it makes total sense to deploy these systems because you know, you know exactly how things are going to be deployed over a long period of time. Where robots haven't been successful is in brownfield sites or brownfield workflows. So what that means is you have a greenfield site that you can't necessarily, you don't have a greenfield site to completely design with automation in mind from the ground up. If you look at most uh, warehousing spaces across the world, they don't have automation for precisely that, that reason. It's very expensive. It's very time intensive to deploy uh, robotics. And by the way, if the, the air compressor goes down or you're, you know, networking is slower than usual and the robot stops working, then your entire system is down because you can't put a person in that workflow to get the job done. So where that flexibility becomes really important is where you have a dynamic environment where you're assuming that to some extent you're going to need to supplement some of the work with people in doing the, the job, or you require a lot of flexibility. So for example, in parcel, delivery, you don't always know the size, weight, shapes, material conditions of the package that's being presented to a person or to a robot. So having a robot that's really flexible and handling those types of materials is very important. But in a lot of precision manufacturing, having something that's incredibly repeatable is, is important. The last thing I'll say on this though, which is really interesting, is that you know, this next level of automation that is flexible can start becoming more flexible in the design standards for manufacturing. So if you have something that's really custom or very bespoke, you know, you can start being more responsive to different types of materials that the robot can handle, different, you know, sizes and configurations and shapes of things that a robot can build. Whereas traditional robots really need everything finely tuned for one work cell and they you know, build the same thing at scales of thousands. But what if you could have a robot that can help adapt to some of the changing requests that a, a customer has so that they can build on the orders of tens, but multiple batches of tens rather than having to build at the scale of thousands in order to make financial sense. That's excellent feedback. And speaking of customized automation, our friend Vlad is here. He wants to know, do you believe that we will reach a point similar to what we saw at Tesla in 2020, where there's so much complexity in the technologies we're deploying that we simply don't have the manpower to properly maintain and support operations and thus negatively impact the process? 
This is a good question, Vlad. Thank you for asking. Yeah. And, you know, candidly, this is one of the biggest challenges in our side of the industry is not just designing for technology, but designing for human use. And within our space, that, that's a field called human robot interaction or human machine interaction, where you're trying to think about how somebody can rapidly get up to speed and not just operating a machine, but also being able to service and support it. So designing for repair, field repair that somebody with a few hours of training can swap out an end defector or, or the gripper on a robot without having to call the OEM or Dexterity or, or some system integrator. How to troubleshoot on a localized um, operating tablet to say, oh, there's something weird here. I can figure out what the problem is and I can help the robot work through the problem without, again, without having to escalate this to the software provider or you know, the integrator that's managing the WMS system. Like those answers are reflected directly to the person who's operating the machine. So at, at Dexterity, you know, we've hired a team of UI, UX experts who go into the field and work with the people deploying our system on the ground to say, where are you getting stuck? Where do you not understand what's happening with a robot? How can we signal intention to, to the robot so that if it's doing something that it's not supposed to do or it's starting to do something that it's not supposed to do, you can flag it and say, oh, you know what? Cancel this order, go build that order someplace else because you know X, Y, and Z thing in this environment has changed or the needs of our system has, has changed. So I think that's a challenge for our industry as a whole to design systems from the ground up so that everybody, you know, some, somebody can be trained very quickly to become a proficient robot operator. Excellent answer. Thank you to Vlad and thank you, Michael, for that input. That's, that's awesome. I think we have time for one more question today, if that's okay. Of course. But I know that you're the VP of marketing. So I did want to ask you a marketing question that I think that my audience could, could, uh, could appreciate as well. From this marketing perspective, right? Because usually, you know, when you're getting into robotics, it's all very technical and, and all of that good stuff. But what do you think the most effective way for companies to position their technology in a way to encourage the adoption of technology? is and would you adopt some of these same strategies when adopting the technology on the shop floor with the frontline workers yeah i i think a lot of this you know you, you talk about marketing but you know marketing is only as good as the product itself and i think when you're doing product discovery and trying to find product market fit one of the best questions that we can ask our customers or prospects is what job do you hate? And like, I mean, going to the person who's doing the job on the floor and saying, if you were to wave a magic wand and do one, you know, solve one thing about your job, what can we do to help you solve that problem? And through that process, you start understanding the real pain points that are not just affecting the person, because they, they affect the person who's on the front line doing that job then it has all these knock-on effects across the organization. 
you have higher churn rates in these jobs. So you're having to spend more time hiring and training. You have less motivation in these jobs. So, you know, you're seeing lower throughput, which then, you know, means that you have to build all this long tail of buffer, assuming that this one task is slower than everything else. And you're buying up additional inventory. So this one piece of the job you know, does it get stuck and cause all these knock-on effects down the supply chain? There's all of these different things that can start, you know, surfacing from these really painful things that people just don't want to do. You know, an example that um, somebody told me about was an uh, anecdote was, you know, there was a company that was looking to help in the construction manufacturing space. And they were really concerned about the adoption by the construction workers who are on the job. And so they went to them and said, what job do you hate? And they said, I hate measuring the temperature of asphalt, which, you know, you have this hot mess of asphalt and it stinks and it's sweaty and it's the summer and it's noxious to breathe in. And you're standing there with a thermometer in this like uncomfortable space where you might get burned and breathe some disgusting air. And so they created an automation solution to do that. And as a result, then the, you know, all these additional ideas of problems that can be solved surface from there. So at Dexterity, you know, we've been looking at things like you have these slapper lanes where you grab something, you put it on a conveyor belt that ends up at, you know, a stacking station where somebody's building a pallet at the end. And, you know, our customers are, you know, the people on the ground are saying, I hate doing that job because I'm having to pick something up and stack it two meters above my head. I'm having to get in trouble because I, you know, I'm trying to problem solve on the fly. I'm doing 50 different things at once. And this package of Huggies got more squished than normally. And now people are complaining about all the squished Huggies that are showing up at the retail store. And it just doesn't make me feel good about the work that I do. So you're seeing this constant turnover in this job. And so, you know, more and more people are having to rotate in or quitting the, the job to go do something else. And you have a lot more inexperienced people piling in. And as a result, you know, more stuff gets crushed and, you know, it's all of these different problems. So from our perspective, you, we can market it all day long to say, you know, there's X, Y, and Z benefit and we stack things at 25% more than this rate. But if we're solving a real pain point, a real problem for the customer, that's when there's an aha moment. And that's where the relationship really unlocks so that we can go do something transformative. Absolutely. That's, that's amazing feedback. And I think there's a lot of value in uh, that response and especially how you, how you position you know, in within not only just your company's products, but to your company's workforce as well. And that's great information. Michael, I know, I think we are over time. <laughs> I've appreciated this conversation. For anybody that's in the audience that is interested in connecting with you or reaching out to you to learn more about yourself or dexterity, how do you wish for them to do so? Yeah, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, Michael Patrick Perry. I'm always happy to talk about robots and automation, even if it, you know, I'm always happy to talk about dexterity and the incredible stuff that we, we're doing. But I love talking about robots. It's a passion of mine and been lucky enough to see 
a lot of stuff that's really cutting edge. Some of it works, some of it's bleeding edge, but the stuff that's working is, is pretty cool. So feel free to reach out. Always happy to chat. Awesome. Well, I can say I feel like your passion for the robotics industry definitely shines through. <laughs>